another whirlwind news week in Washington. It was just a week ago last Friday that Trump announced via tweet, of course, that Reince Priebus would no longer be serving as chief of staff, that he was being replaced by Homeland Security Secretary General John Kelly. Among Kelly's first moves was firing newly installed White House Communications Director Anthony Scaramucci. That was only Monday. Trump's choice to put General Kelly, a four-star Marine general, in the chief of staff job has been lauded by many who believe that Kelly can bring some order to a White House that has faced controversy and shakeups and failed to make progress on much of the president's agenda. But can Kelly do that? That's right. This is Can He Do That? A podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. To help us answer whether a new chief of staff can fix a White House in chaos, we'll talk to Christine Simmons, a former special assistant to George W. Bush, and Chris Whipple, author of Gatekeepers, How the White House Chiefs of Staff Define Every Presidency. But first, we're bringing you someone who knows General Kelly well, who spent years reporting on him, our very own Greg Jaffe, national correspondent here at The Post. Greg, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Sure. So let's just start with this general question of who is General John Kelly? You know, he's a really interesting guy. He uh, came in as an enlisted Marine rather than an officer. So, you know, that means he kind of came in right out of high school. He came in kind of towards the end of the Vietnam War and then went on to become an officer, rose through the Marine Corps. He was notable for a couple of reasons. He commanded troops on the drive up to Baghdad in 2003. Both of his sons followed in his footsteps. His younger son, Rob, or Robert, enlisted just like he did in the Marine Corps, uh, then got out, went to college, went back into the Marine Corps as an officer, and was killed uh, in Afghanistan. And so General Kelly was uh, the most senior general to lose a son in Afghanistan, and he may have been the, the only general to lose a son in Afghanistan, which is notable. And what was his leadership like in the military? You know, he's a salt-of-the-earth guy. He's not one of these defense sort of intellectuals, the way you would think of a General Petraeus uh, or General Mattis. You know, he was a, kind of a muddy boots Marine, I guess is what you would say. I think he was a sort of a beloved figure, even prior to his son dying. You know, uh, he was kind of well-known. He's a you know, from South Boston. He sounds like he's from South Boston. He's not afraid to swear a little bit. Um, <laughs> Not in Scaramucci fashion, but, uh, you know, <laughs> he talks like a Marine. Yeah, so interesting. So he's generally, you know, his reputation was positive. He was this well-respected guy, or is rather this well-respected guy. So what are some notable moments from, from Kelly's time as Homeland Security Secretary? You know, I think that the, I think what was surprising to some people is that he was much harder line than people expected. I think people looked at all these generals who were coming in, McMaster, Mattis, Kelly, and they thought that they would largely be sort of moderating forces in the administration. I don't think Kelly saw himself as somebody who needed to moderate Trump. Um, he saw himself as somebody who was going to execute Trump's vision. And so on immigration, he took a fairly hard and aggressive line that pleased the president a lot. And on um, the executive order regarding uh, the ban from the seven majority Muslim countries, he was very aggressive in sort of moving out on that. I'm kind of curious to see, just in a self-interested way, whether the combative relationship with the press continues or he makes some effort to dial that back. You know, having dealt with him a lot when he was in uniform, I felt like he respected and understood the role we played. 
And so it'll be interesting to see how he finesses some of that. Hasn't he made some controversial comments about the role of the press? You know, he was caught joking on camera with President Trump at a, I think it was a Coast Guard graduation. They gave President Trump a sword and he sort of joked with them, hey, you can use that on the media, which is a sort of Kelly kind of joke. And to be honest, it's the kind of joke I would make going the other way about somebody who I liked and respected. I will say um, Nikki Khan, a photographer here on, at The Post, and I did a story about General Kelly a few months after his son died. And we spent a fair amount of time with him. He was reluctant to do the story with us at first. Um, I think he was worried that our writing about the death of his son would make it look like his son's death was more special or more heartbreaking than other uh, the children of others who were killed. But we sort of overcame that, and we talked about why it was important. And I will say, he, I felt like he had a – the access was great. He Once he decided to do it, he was open and honest. He understood what we were trying to do and why it was important. He let us uh, uh, go with him to San Antonio where he pinned uh, a purple heart on uh, the chest of one of Robert's, his son's Marines, who had lost an arm. So I found him to be – really open understanding of the role we played. So then knowing as much as you know about General Kelly, why would he take this chief of staff job amid so much White House turmoil? You know, I think he took it because he believes, first and foremost, in the president's policies. I think he does believe in them on immigration, as he showed in Department of Homeland Security uh, in his tenure there. In talking to him and in looking at some of his speeches when he was a Marine general, he really did see terrorism and the fight against radical Islamic terrorism as a sort of existential threat to the United States. And so it's not surprising to me that Trump's language and the way he talks about that threat would also appeal to General Kelly. I think he felt like the Obama administration tended to downplay that threat. Did Kelly ever talk about ambitions to gain political power in Washington or to work at the White House? Was this his intention? No, I think it was like the furthest thing from his mind. I think he he rose far higher in the Marine Corps than he thought he would. And I don't mean that as a dig on him. I just think he was a relatively modest guy. I don't think he had any interest in coming to Washington. I don't think he ever dreamed that he would be serving in the White House or be a, a cabinet secretary. You know, I, I think his vision was probably to finish his career and move back to Boston. Regardless of his ambitions, now General Kelly has to fulfill this chief of staff job. So what exactly does it take? Christine Simmons is Vice President of Government Affairs at the Partnership for Public Service, and she also worked as a special assistant in the White House to President George W. Bush. Here's what she had to say. The chief of staff has several responsibilities in the White House. So one of the first things that they need to do is oversee the managerial functions of that operation making sure that the care and feeding of the president, as it's often referred to, is tended to. That includes scheduling, making sure that the briefing papers are being given to the president when he needs them, in the form he likes them. There's also the responsibility for the policy operation and making sure that the policymaking apparatus and decision-making structures in the White House are operating in such a way that the right information is getting to the president so he can make the right decisions when they need to be made. So why do we need a centralized role like that? Why not have people report directly to the president? The burdens on the president are extreme. When you think about the number of decisions that need to be made in any given day. And the important role that the chief of staff plays is to make sure that 
The decisions that get to the president are the decisions that need to be made at that level. So part of the role of the chief of staff is to make sure that the president is getting all sides of an issue and a variety of views so can make a decision based not on someone else's agenda, but on a full set of information that will allow for the best decision. So the chief of staff doesn't necessarily relay all of the policy positions, but he might convene the right group of people to present those positions to the president. I think that's a fair statement, yes, which doesn't mean that the chief of staff might not have an opinion or a position or expertise that would be of value to the president in making a a decision. But the job of the chief of staff is to make sure that all voices are heard so the president can make a decision that is consistent with his views and is, is based on a full understanding of the issue at hand. Right. So given that that's the case, what kind of characteristics might a president look for in a chief of staff? That's highly dependent on the president, of course. Most chiefs of staff, when you look at the more recent people who have held that position, they have been pretty even-keeled, steady people with reputations for being honest brokers, having a word that means something. In other words, they're people of integrity. And that's typically the model. It would be rare to have someone in the chief of staff role who is likely to fly off the handle or be anything less than a pretty steady presence. So you worked in the White House under George W. Bush. How important is it for the White House to run efficiently? Is that a critical part of of what makes a successful White House? My experience in the White House was a sense of everybody working with different skills and bringing different things to the table, but working towards the same goals, and that is executing on the president's agenda and serving the public. So I think an important factor for any White House and White House chief of staff is to set the tone at the top and have that cascade throughout the staff that we are all here on one team. We may have different views. We may have healthy debate, but we're all driving towards good outcomes for the public, and we are doing our best to serve the president and execute the president's agenda. So it's very much a team spirit that a chief of staff wants to foster within the White House. And we've seen a a ton of White House shakeups these past few weeks. Based on what you know about careers in public service and the way the government runs, is it problematic to have so much turnover? I think it's problematic to the extent that time has been lost trying to find the right people and the right rhythm. But the positive side is that they are trying to course correct. As things are not working in the White House, they are trying to find a model that is better, that is going to work more effectively. So I think it would be more problematic to take a dysfunctional system or personnel and roles that they're not suited to and to keep them there. So I think we should consider the fact that change is happening as a positive sign that they are learning and adjusting. So learning and adjusting to the presidency, that's not new. But is there any precedent for firing a chief of staff amid turmoil and shakeups? Chris Whipple interviewed 17 former chiefs of staff for his book. That book, The Gatekeepers, How the White House Chiefs of Staff Define Every Presidency, examines the history of the position and its power. Here's Chris.
Well, the precedent for this is not encouraging because the last time we had a general as White House chief, he lasted a little over a month. You know, Reince Priebus gets a longevity record compared to Al Haig, who was Gerald Ford's White House chief after Richard Nixon resigned. He lasted, as I say, you know, just a little over a month, and it was a disaster. One of the reasons it was a disaster was because Jerry Ford had a model of White House governance that was a lot like Donald Trump's. You know, everybody came and went with equal access to the Oval Office. Nobody was empowered as first among equals. Ford called it the spokes of the wheel with the president at the center. It was a disaster. So within a month, he was begging his old friend Donald Rumsfeld to come in and whip the White House into shape, which is exactly what Rumsfeld did, with help, by the way, from a 34-year-old deputy named Dick Cheney, who who himself turned out to be a, a first-rate White House chief of staff uh, succeeding Rumsfeld. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about why that spokes of the wheel approach and the approach of lacking a centralized person in that chief of staff role, why that's been problematic. Why doesn't that work? You know, Dick Cheney explained it to me this way. He said, you can't have eight or nine guys sitting around when there's a really urgent issue to discuss with the president, something unpleasant that has to be taken to him. You can't have eight or nine guys sitting around saying, well, it's your turn to do it. No, it's your turn to do it. No, it's your turn to do it. You can't run the White House that way. Somebody has to be empowered as first among equals. He's not, he's not only the gatekeeper, he's also the so-called honest broker of information. And at the end of the day, as I say, the most important thing he does is tell the president what he doesn't want to hear. So do you think that General Kelly is somebody who can fulfill all of that? Well, Kelly has a big problem, and that is a more than one big problem. He's got a long list of challenges, and the first is a completely broken White House so far. This is a White House that hasn't been able to do anything right. It can't execute, it can't issue executive orders that are enforceable, it can't pass legislation, it can't prioritize the president's message, it can't get anybody on the same page. So he's got a broken White House, which he has to fix. So how can Kelly specifically handle the complicated issue of the president's children? We've got Jared and Ivanka who often have the president's ear, even if they say they report through Kelly, which it's still a little bit unclear if that's exactly how that will work. It would still seem difficult for for Kelly to really serve as an intermediary between a president and his children. It's a really tough challenge. Um, And, you know, I don't think that Kelly, it's unrealistic for Kelly to expect to control the the family, to control their access to the president. They're going to have access. I think that the challenge here is he has to be sure that even if Trump is talking to Jared about Middle East policy, that Trump is also talking to Tillerson, that Tillerson is the principal spokesman for foreign policy. And specific to the president's tweets, do you think that the chief of staff should be the person who stops Donald Trump from tweeting? How should that relationship work? Well, there's the, there's the question of what, how should it work and how will it work? There's no precedent for a president sending irrational messages out in the dead of night. And, you know, this is really a difficult job for uh, for Kelly to get hold of. I mean, the first non-negotiable demand for a new chief should be control of the Twitter account. Well, if that's not happening, I would suggest that General Kelly 
draw a few red lines. And one of the red lines would be, Mr. President, I understand that tweeting is your bully pulpit. You think it's effective, and it certainly it can be effective. But if you tweet something that is demonstrably false, I will resign, and you'll be looking for your third White House chief. I think every effective White House chief has to be prepared to resign. Interesting. So what do you make of the firing of Scaramucci? Do you think that was a good exercise of power for Kelly? Look, I mean, that was the minimal first step that uh, that Kelly really had to take. That was a no-brainer. I mean, you had throwing Scaramucci over the White House fence was an absolute necessity. If I were Kelly, quite frankly, I'd keep Stephen Miller away from the press room, too. I think that was a mistake. Having said that, um, getting rid of Scaramucci was a good first step. But, boy, now, now, the, the, now the real work begins. Yeah, so what next steps should Kelly take? Well, he's got to make sure that he's empowered as the first among equals in the West Wing. And so he's got to make sure that everybody, with the exception of family, is reporting through him. I would say possibly with the exception of Bannon, there's no harm in perhaps in Bannon having access to the Oval, direct access, as long as the execution of policy belongs with Kelly. But that's the first thing. And that appears to be happening, perhaps. You know, the early signs are that people are reporting through him. Yeah. And so that that's a great segue to the final question here, which is, historically speaking, have you seen a chief of staff faced with as difficult a task as this current administration in turmoil? Never. There's never been a challenge this big for a White House chief of staff. You know, when Don Rumsfeld uh, became Gerald Ford's chief of staff in the at, at a real low point for the Ford presidency, right after Ford had pardoned Richard Nixon, he was in free fall in the polls, nothing was working, the White House was really dysfunctional. That was, a, in my mind, a piece of cake compared to this. So, you know, I wish General Kelly luck, but he's got a very full plate. So, Greg, interestingly, both Democrats and Republicans have seemed encouraged by the hiring of Kelly. Why do you think that is? I think people have been disturbed and worried by how chaotic things are. The notion that, you know, it's an old saw at this point, but that, you know, President Trump tends to reflect the opinion of the last person he saw and that there hasn't been sort of a disciplined policy process in the White House. And I think people view Kelly as somebody who will impose some order on the White House. I think it's also true that he's somebody they know. You know, he worked well in the Obama administration, I think, with Democrats. At least in the Pentagon, I can say that, you know, the Obama political appointees liked him and respected him and felt like he, you know, worked within the system. I think there was some tension with him and some of the people at the White House. But he's somebody Democrats in this town know, and that goes a long way. Yeah, and one thing in particular that seems to be problematic for the Trump White House is their their lack of connection to Republicans in Congress, their failed ability to move ahead on a legislative agenda. And some people say that's because there aren't very many establishment Republicans in the White House, and now there are none at all, essentially. Do you think that Kelly will help bridge that space between congressional Republicans and the White House, or should we not expect that? I don't know. It's fascinating. You know, he knows a little bit about the Hill because he was a liaison officer. That was many years ago. But he certainly doesn't 
have a depth of knowledge there. I think the one thing he does have is that he's got the respect of the president. So when that he speaks, people realize and feel like he's speaking for the president. I think he also probably has a better sense of give and take with the Hill and what works and what doesn't up there. So I think we don't know how effective he'll be or whether anyone in this environment can be uh, effective. It's not like the Obama administration had a great string of legislative successes either in its in its last term. There are now several generals surrounding Trump in high-level positions, but Secretary Mattis at the Defense Department, National Security Advisor McMaster, Kelly as Chief of Staff. Is this something that should raise flags or raise concern for the American public? I mean, I don't think we're going to have a coup anytime soon. I think the risk is the military is seen as sort of pro-Trump or pro-Republican. You know, that would be really divisive for the military. And so I think if you have successive administrations that follow this path, it could be a real problem. Military leaders are very experienced and have a great depth of experience in certain areas, much less so in others. So you worry a little bit about having a White House that's so heavily weighted towards military perspectives may distort the way we either approach foreign policy or domestic policy. So, Greg, final question here, the can he do that question, can General Kelly do this? Can the general bring some sort of order to the chaos that the White House has seen over the past six months? Yeah, I, I think he can because I think he's got Trump's respect. I think Trump does have a reflexive sort of respect for, for generals. I think Kelly's got a couple of other things that work in his way. One is that he's 67, so he's a contemporary of the president. I think he has the ability to win the president's respect to have a friendly sort of bantering relationship with him that Reince Priebus couldn't. The president's not going to tell him to to swat a fly, <laughs> as <laughs> he apparently did according to a story in, the, in our paper. You know, he would never dream of that. And so I think that that helps that their contemporaries, though I think they will be friends. I think the president will listen to him. I think particularly on national security stuff, which sometimes seems to bore the president a little bit, or you get the sense that it does. I think he can go to the President Trump and say, hey, this is really important. We really need to focus on this. We really need to make time for this on the schedule today. Let's block an hour. My gut is that Trump will listen to him. I don't think Reince Priebus was in a place to make that kind of argument to the president. Yeah. So th that certainly seems critical, an ear for national security issues. Well, Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show. You guys can follow Greg Jaffe on Twitter at... Oh, uh, at Greg Jaffe. <laughs> or you can follow me, Allison Michaels, at Allison Mikes. Okay, guys, that is it. Another episode of Can He Do That in the Books. Please keep on listening. Share it with your friends. Tell everyone you know. Let us know what you want to hear. We love hearing from you guys. Thanks so much. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the hardworking and dedicated Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks and logo art from Loren Boglio. like can he do that you should check out some of our other great podcasts like constitutional a series about how people have framed and reframed the constitution over time from host lillian cunningham or try cape up with jonathan capehart where jonathan brings you the voices you need to hear on the topics you try to avoid 
You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.